wow, this person's trapped in the wrong story. Yeah. And we got to get them out of that story. We all want to feel better and be happier and have more freedom. And there are endless resources at our fingertips. But wading through a sea of self-help books and podcasts and workshops takes more time than anyone has. Except me. That's my job. So many of the books that we read about family relationships, it's based on a series. My name is Kevin Miller. I'm the host of the Self-Helpful podcast. I research today's most important influencers and change makers and invite the best of them onto the show to grapple with their own wisdom and stories in an authentic, relatable conversation about self-improvement and what drives them. You said it exactly right. When you take a look at life, relationship is everything. Join me as I curate and translate the most effective self-help wisdom to help you elevate your personal experience and improve the way you show up for others. Living more authentically and controlling how we interpret our lives. When we think of deathbed regrets, we generally envision ourselves as some shriveled up old person in a hospital bed with some regrets. And in truth, I don't think we care. That's that person's problem in the future. It doesn't relate to my life right now. And today I want to achieve great things and have great things and enjoy my life. And we miss two profound truths that matter most. One is you could have an accident or get a diagnosis tomorrow that makes the regret right here now. And two, and more relevant, I think, the deathbed regrets are more focused on realizing the depth and fulfillment and happiness that we missed previously in our lives, that we are missing today, right now. I'm back for round two with Jordan Grummet talking through his values and habits. Jordan was an internal medicine physician who left clinical practice to devote himself to hospice care and deep conversations about life. And he covers this in his book, Taking Stock, A Hospice Doctor's Advice on Financial Independence, Building Wealth and Living a Regret-Free Life, which was our topic in our first show together. And it was in the category here of mind and mental health, where Jordan ruminated on how he's so altered by his end-of-life patients and realizing how influenced their lives were, not by true objective realities, but by the stories they wrote around those. And this is his personal intent to have control over how he interprets his life. And also how so often his patients had significant regret that they didn't live lives more authentically. They lived for the expectation of others and cultural pressures. As for other categories, Jordan shares how seeing people literally die right before him and sensing something significant changed right there in the room and how that's impacted his spiritual perspective. He shares how many of his patients regret not taking care of themselves better, how that's influenced his own health and wellness pursuits, how he sees money as a tool and now it hurts people when they see money as a goal in and of itself. He talks about as of late, he's thinking about taking up an old hobby, collecting baseball cards, because he realizes the nostalgic feeling he has around them. And so he's given it more value to his own inspiration. The Self-Helpful Podcast was founded through the Zig Ziglar Corporation. If you are a coach or consultant and want to add credibility, clients, and impact to your business, go to Ziglar.com today. 
following these sponsors who help make the show possible and provide great resources for your life, I bring you Jordan Grummet and a walk through his personal values and habits. You can find Jordan at Jordan Grummet, G-R-U-M-E-T dot com. I'm a foodie and I enjoy learning about the process that brings great foods and beverages from idea to the table. And then I like tasting them and learning the nuances of what creates the most significant tastes from coffee to cheese to distilled beverages. I did a tequila tasting in Mexico and recently bourbon, Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon really impressed me from the story to the taste. I grew up in Kentucky where horse racing and bourbon are famous and I got introduced to Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon. It's produced by Heaven Hill Distillery, which has been and still remains family owned since 1935. And I'm impressed with the bourbon's ultra rich, smooth taste. And right on the bottle, it states that this bourbon is seven years old, which is actually three times longer than what's required to be certified as bottled in bond. I feel with beverages, the longer the prep, the better the taste. Being a bottled in bond product means it must pass a list of seven requirements that set the standard for this quality bourbon. So look for it at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely and drink wisely. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jordan, this episode feels interesting because as we're talking about values and motives and habits, and that's your focus. That's the focus of your book that we taking stock that we just talked about so much. So I'm eager to hear yours personally, especially with the knowledge that you have as in, in your role. And then I've got some questions for, I think, the cultural perspectives in these areas as well as you have seen them in such an acute state. So we start off with spiritual as the focus. But yeah, and I do. I've got some questions beyond you too, but I'll start off just with you. So when, when I ask you, Jordan, about where your values are spiritually and then how you walk those out, fill me in. So spiritually, I, I always feel like you have to separate spiritually from religious. So- yep. I have never felt myself to be a very religious person, but felt myself to be a spiritual person. In a sense, I guess what that means is I believe that we have deeper connections with other people and this earth and our surroundings and the moment. And I feel like we have to pay homage to those by being present in the moment mm -hmm. and thoughtful in a sense, I think for me, a lot of spirituality feels like connectedness. So can I feel connected to those people around me and my environment and what I'm doing? But I don't have other spiritual practices other than, so in a sense, so I do believe in things like meditation. So some people would call that spirituality. For me, actually, I feel that's much more a connection to myself, but I certainly believe in meditation and I use meditative practices on a pretty regular basis, as well as visualization and those types of things. Um, so I, it's funny because I feel like it's a big part of my life and yet I don't feel like it's something that I 
specifically elucidate the words to describe exactly what it is. I think it just is who I am. Well, I was going to say, so more so than a tangible tactile practice, it's more of a, just a spirit of your being throughout the day. You're yeah, just- I think an, an, an awareness and a connectedness, feeling connected again to those people and the places you're, that are around you and, and where you find yourself during your given day-to-day activities. How did your, or I'll ask, did your perspective on, let's say, spirituality change or was it altered when you started entering into this place of life now doing, you know, palliative care uh, and seeing, gosh, just the immense gravity. Now I know as a doctor, you were seeing a lot of, gosh, you know, immensely acute and you said heartbreaking things. So that obviously I would assume that did too, but then also in moving into this other phase, were those things that kind of helped you step back and looking at, even as you talk about purpose and whatnot, those to me are spiritually founded perspectives. You know, it's funny. I started out very much as a scientist, right? So in science, in biology, in high school, college, you study evolution. And if you really look at evolution and believe in evolution, you get to this point where consciousness really seems like it probably was evolutionary, right? That there was probably a time when there wasn't consciousness and then selection, survival of the fittest, selected out people who had a genetic mutation which caused consciousness and consciousness allowed them to navigate the world and reproduce more, et cetera. And so when you look at it from a scientific viewpoint, if you start thinking about consciousness as just something that evolved in us, you kind of come to this idea that there is nothing more, right? We kind of live and when we die and consciousness dies with our bodies, we're gone and that's all. I juxtapose that to my experiences in hospice and palliative care, where I've had the privilege of being at the bedside many times as a patient has departed, as they've taken their last breath. And I will tell you, I've been in the room enough or walked into the room and found a patient who had already passed to realize that something happens that I can't explain. Like I've been with a patient on their last breaths and they die and something leaves. And I don't know how to explain that. All I can say is they feel different. They look different. Something changes. And I'd even say that, again, I've worked in nursing homes and we have a lot of elderly patients there. And some of the elderly patients are what's called do not resuscitate. So we know that someday they're going to die in their sleep and that's totally fine. And I've walked into rooms of nursing home patients expecting to find them and examine them. And they've passed away. And usually I can tell right when I walk in the door and it's not looking at their chest to see if it's moving up and down. It's not looking for the obvious stuff. There's just a change and something feels different. So reflecting that back on my sense of spirituality, I've definitely changed in the sense that I know there's something there that I can't explain, whether that's an afterlife, whether there's a soul, whether the soul leaves the body. I don't know, (laughs) but I can tell you that I've experienced that. And so we are more than the sum of our bones and muscles, our cells and our mitochondria. There's more to us. I've sensed that, especially as I've done more and more of this work. Uh, What that means is much harder to tell. Um, And how that affects my life, other than to know, I guess I always reflect this back on being 
as intentional as I can in living what I feel is kind of a good life, mm. meaning helping people, making a difference, being there. The more I do that, the more I sense peace about whatever the spirituality is in me and what will happen to it maybe the, the day I die. Well, thank you. And it's interesting that you started off saying, as, as is a common phrase, that uh, your spirituality is not necessarily religiosity or religion, which, as you attest to, I'm going to say the mystery of what you've experienced, it often feels to me like religion tries to take the mystery out and give us certainty. I don't know that the God that I believe in is that small for us to be certain about those things. <laughs> Being a doctor, so I, I didn't grow up particularly religious. I was in part of a religious family, and I, I, I followed through with religion to a certain age when I had the choice not to. But I am not anti-religion in any way. In fact, I see a lot of the good religion does, especially if you, again, go back to the scientist in me. I see how people live longer and have more sense of community, and religion can do some incredibly good things to me for people. Uh, but I never felt real connected to it myself. This sense of spirituality, the sense of feeling something leave as people die, maybe is the closest I come to connection to a God or something other. Mm -hmm. I guess I wouldn't describe it in the words that maybe modern day religion uses, but there's something there. There's some connection. I, I, again, I don't know if I... And the one that, that knows how to elucidate that connection. But there's some connection there. There's something. Can I ask your experience with people specifically who are, who you deliver that diagnosis to, and then it get to experience whether they're, you know, it's a six month, uh, six week, six year, whatever it is, but you experience that shift away from, as we talked about in our first talk together, away from the fear, away from the self-protectedness. And, and I'll, and I'll say in, in conjunction with regrets and whatnot, does spirituality come up as a topic? Is that a frequent topic and how do you see it play in? Oh, it, it most certainly does. And so the grand majority of people, not everyone, but the grand majority of people get over the original shock and pain and sadness. I shouldn't say get over, but they come to terms enough with it that they start thinking about those deeper things. Okay. And so I think spirituality plays a big, big role for people. And I think it's very comforting for those who specifically believe in religion and the dictates of their religion bring them comfort, knowing that they believe there's an afterlife or something for them and that this is part of God's plan. And that brings them a lot of comfort. But I also think for the people who don't necessarily steep these type of feelings in religion, but fear, feel spiritual, um, there is the recognition of a connection to the world and the people around them and that maybe that connection will persist even after they're gone. Mm -hmm. um, spirituality is a little bit more ephemeral. I guess we could use something more concrete like legacy. Um, okay. But I think they touch on something very similar. This idea that there is more to us than just the physical object that we are and that after that physical object is no longer there. There might be some part of us that goes on and can still help affect, change the world around us. Well, and you, you talked about in our first talk together and you have already here just about relationships and that's the next category here is, is relationships. And I would tend to think that your 
latter trajectory of life and the focus of this book and whatnot has changed your perspective, some your values on relationships. So let me look at that one and ask you there, where do your values, what, what are the highlights of bubble to the surface of your Jordan's values in relationships? And then again, what do you do to walk those out? I mean, I think relationships are probably the most important or certainly one of the most important things we have when I talk about a lot of this purpose and identity work, I think the end stage of that, and I talk a lot about connections, which is exactly relationships. Yeah. I think when we figure out our sense of purpose and better live a true sense of identity, it naturally leads us to connections, which are those bonds we have with other people. I've realized that human beings are complicated and complex even when we have the best of intentions, we sometimes don't necessarily do a good job of supporting and helping and being with each other. So as I've done a lot of this work with writing the book and dealing with dying people, I've tried to become extremely intentional about my relationships. And so we can't control ultimately what happens in the world, but we can control our intentions towards mm -hmm. them. So I think a lot about how do I be a good friend or spouse or parent? And so I spend a lot more time thinking about those things and how can I be create those relationships that other people need from me and that I also need to feel fulfilled and to feel at peace. Because I think ultimately that is the end state of working on purpose and identity. It's building connections, community and relationships um, and allowing those to nurture you. And I think that's what probably gives us the closest thing we call the happiness. Well, on that, now we had Robert Waldinger on the show not long ago, and he, that's, you know, the longest scientific study on happiness and it was relationships. You know, that's what makes us happy. But I appreciate you saying connections because since that time I've thought about, okay, well, we can't just say relationships. A lot of people have mm -hmm. crappy relationships and those are not making us happy, but it's the one that we, you know, where we really do connect. So going to your work uh, with people at end of life. And, you know, of course, in the first show, we talked about regrets and whatnot. You talk about that in the book. Relationships are pretty much top of the list. If not, we talked about bucket list type ideas or, or achievements and stuff. You know, and that's the, the pithy statement that we make that nobody is on the deathbed and they regret. Oh, I wish I just worked more. Yeah. Back, back to that. I mean, how many people have you said, oh my gosh, my biggest regret is I did not make more money to the financial aspect of it. I mean, is, is it, it, it overwhelmingly, it is relationship focused of what they wish they had put that more time or as we ended the show with priority to. Yeah, most definitely. And as we talk about these things and, and we've talked about spirituality and now we're talking about relationships, I'd really like to think of this conversation really as about legacy. Right. Because I think that's what we're building with all these things, with our spirituality, with our relationships. What we're building is a connection to the world that will last after we're gone, that our bodies are ephemeral, but maybe our spirits, whatever it is, maybe that our advice, our knowledge, our love, our personal habits, our traits, all those things that people get from us last and go on. And that's what I would call legacy. Um, and I think that's central to this conversation because what we're really doing is building a legacy of who we are that persists. Hmm. That's interesting. So 
when we look at the, how does it come out though? I mean, tangibly, you know, with somebody at that point, they've got six months to live or, 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 and that gives them time, as you said, to, to maybe try to make some reconnections, but let's say the person who doesn't, let's say we're talking six days. I mean, it's really mm-hmm. end of life and they regret, is it that they did not just spend more time in investing in relationships or was it that they wish they had repaired certain relationships? Did they get into issues of, I wish I had not held on to that bitterness. I wish I had forgiven I me. Mean, what are the terminologies that come up? I, I think all of that. And again, if we get back to this idea of legacy, what you're really saying is I wish I connected on a deeper level to affect change in their lives, change that would last far past me, right? Did I reconnect with those people? Did I pass on the important knowledge? Did I listen to them and make them feel strong and able so they could move on in life? And will those things that I've left help them in the future? Yeah. And so I think it runs the gamut of all those things. What we're really doing is we're saying, you know, was I what, pe- was I what people needed from me to benefit far into the future? Because again, I am finite. I will stop. I'll cease to exist. But those things, for instance, I teach my children that allow them to be successful and they'll have their own children. And my grandchild will pick up a personal habit or trait that my child picked up from me that will make them really good at something that will persist. We talk about generational trauma all the time and we always talk about the bad things. But what we don't talk about is the exact opposite. Not only do we get the generational trauma, we also get their successes and their love and their beliefs and their habits and their spirituality, all of those things are passed down. And so ultimately I think we want to leave as much of the good (laughs) along with, unfortunately, sometimes we leave the bad and that's the generational trauma, but I think we want to remember to leave the good. And that's what I think this conversation comes down to. Well, and and you've got me thinking too, back to, again, our first discussion together that, when we're talking about relationships, how often back to Maslow's, you know, pyramid there that the self-actualization do are the regret, how often is my, to frame it around a question, is the regret around that, the lack of connectedness to self? No. Is that a primary, but do people get there? Do they realize that? Is that common that they realize I did not connect with myself? Again, I think I go back to the story we talked about before with my love of baseball cards, right? Right. So there was this shop owner who, an antique dealer, built this habit of buying and selling baseball cards because it allowed him to develop a community with a lot of the kids in the neighborhood, especially the kids who maybe were on the outskirts and weren't fitting in and couldn't be part of the sports teams and all those kind of things. That legacy became part of who I was, one of those dorky kids who felt disconnected and found my community in his little antique shop. Long after he died, here I am at 50 years old, coming to terms with my identity and purpose, realizing this is a part of who I am. And then maybe building that into my practice of purpose and identity and connections. And maybe I'll use that knowledge and love to connect with other people. 
and there'll be some other kid or person waiting in the wings who will it affect their lives. And long after I'm gone, they'll connect with their sense of purpose and identity and remember those gifts that were passed on generationally, even though we all weren't related, and affect and leave a legacy for those who come after them. Thankfully, the days of building a business website, then having this massive endeavor to integrate an online store are gone. Today, Shopify has fixed all that. I had one business where we actually built the entire website on Shopify's platform. So whether you're just starting out or you're selling a million bucks of product already, Shopify is just the industry leader. It works the same for physical products or online and digital, and Shopify is just hands down the best out there. Most importantly, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. It's 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Getting people to buy is not that hard, at least to the buying point, but getting them to actually give their payment info is, and Shopify is king in that department. They also have top tier customer service, which I think is critical. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Kevin. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Kevin to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Kevin. I live high up in the Rocky Mountains where the air is clean and fresh as possible, but then I step indoors and I'm breathing in untold amounts of toxins and allergens from paint and carpet and cleaning chemicals and pets and furniture and appliances and mold and so on. Studies show the indoor air is two to five times more polluted than the outdoor air anywhere you are. And in some places it's a hundred times worse than that. Well, the solution is to get an air purifier and air doctor is just the best out there. It filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants and allergens such as pollen and pet dander and dust mites and mold and even bacteria and viruses so your lungs don't have to try to do that. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Go to airdoctorpro.com. You can use the promo code KEVIN, and depending on the model, you'll receive up to 39% off or up to 300 bucks exclusive to podcast customers, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. So to get the special deal, go to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com. Use promo code Kevin. Friends, I'm pretty candid about my lack of financial prowess. Money and numbers are fairly Greek to me, so I need a lot of guidance. One of my closest friends is a wildly successful wealth manager, and I'm working on some financial literacy and just continually seeking guidance. So I ask you to check out yahoofinance.com. Nobody knows it all, and Yahoo Finance is an incredible resource for the rookies like me or the seasoned investors. You know, before my dad passed away recently, Dave Ramsey and his wife, Sharon, flew down to visit. We all got to spend a day together. And I was at yahoofinance.com just now. I saw multiple news flashes from Dave and other people that you respect. And they were hitting so many of the hottest areas in finance today. So it's a place to get a snapshot of all aspects of your financial interests. And if you have them, your portfolios. 
I hadn't realized Yahoo Finance is the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. So for your comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. One more time. YahooFinance.com. Well, Jordan, the next one is health and wellness. So on that, you know, it's interesting. Again, we talked about the arrogancy in essence of putting the important things off till the end of life, assuming that we will have time, that we will have capacity to enjoy that. So I would imagine that your experience with people in such a state has influenced your own perspective on health and wellness. So tell tell me about the values there. So I look at health and wellness very much as part of my purpose. So I think if we can build health and wellness into our sense of purpose, it allows us also pursue those non-health and wellness purposes in our lives, right? So we do better when we feel better and when we're taking care of ourselves and when we build those personal habits that make us healthy. And so health and wellness are very important to me. I mean, I probably spend two hours a day exercising now. I used to be one of those guys who'd go to the gym and stress out and exercise really, really heavy. And then I ended up dreading my exercise habit. So I've changed quite a bit. Like I do tons of walking and some slow jogging and some exercise bike and yoga. So I've changed the way I do things to make it more joyful. But I think health and wellness is part of that purpose and identity practice. And when we build it in, it amplifies those other parts of purpose in our life because we just feel more connected and healthy and energetic to do those things we want to do. And of course, like any sort of purpose, you can build community and connections in that. So I like to exercise, but you know what I really like to do? Exercise with my wife. Hmm. And so I am using that, something that's important that makes me feel good and energetic and happy to also build yet another connection with my wife. It's an activity we do together. It makes us stronger Um, And so that's my goal is health and wellness are part of my purpose. I think it makes me feel good. I think it's should be part of most people's purpose. I think it frees us emotionally and physically to do those things we really want to do in life. Uh, How about on the nutrition side, anything that you ascribe to there specifically? So nutrition is a tough one. There's what I ascribe to and then what I practice, just well, like everyone else, is right? That, yeah, with all of us. Oh, so great. obviously the easy stuff, right? So being a doctor for many, many years, counseling on nutrition and wellness, we should all probably eat a little less. <laughs> we should all probably eat things we can identify, right? So if you're looking at the list of ingredients and there's lots of t- chemicals and words that you can't explain, then it's probably not the most healthy. We should all strive to probably make things fresh more than to buy pre-made or to go to restaurants that pre-make things for you. And then I think we have to accept the fact that perfect is the enemy of good, which means we all crave that super double scoop hot fudge sundae with all the toppings on it. And to deny yourself those things that you love 100% of the time probably isn't good either. Uh, So I think that we've got to have a moderation practice that just like anything else, I was born in a family in which 
So talking about generational trauma and what we pass on, my grandmother was a depression baby, right? So she was born during the Great Depression. Her mother died during the influenza pandemic of 1918. She ended up being put up for adoption and so grew up and aged out of an adoption home during the Great Depression. So imagine what kind of food and scarcity habits she must have had. She passed them down to my mother, who I think passed them down to us, whether intentionally or not. So I tend to eat as much as put as, as put in front of my face. I definitely have fears of food scarcity. Food ended up being connected during childhood to every happy occasion. It was always celebrated with food. So I, I personally have to fight that battle of disconnecting food from wellness in the sense of happiness or purpose and have to put it back where it belongs, which is nourishment. Yeah. And so that's a struggle I've had my whole life. My weight's ballooned up and down and I've definitely had to give myself grace at not always being good at that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think we need to put it back in the place of nourishment, right? This is what nourishes our mind and body. And we try to be respectful to our minds and bodies with exercise and habits and sleep and all those other things. Uh, I think we have to look at the same with food and we have to find a way for food to support us, to give ourselves some grace, to splurge occasionally and to have that fun time, uh, but also to build in those habits and practices of healthy eating and not overeating. Um, I've definitely moved away from alcohol as I've gotten older. I used to like drinking alcohol. I used to like beer a lot. I've actually found myself buying the non-alcoholic beers. They give me all the great taste and none of the hangovers, uncomfortable feelings, nausea, bloatedness that, that even drinking a beer or two now does for me. So yeah. I've tried to generally, as I get older, move towards more healthy practices. And I find that I'm generally happier on the inside when I take care of my outsides a little better. How I, I want to ask Jordan, do you see that again on the, in essence, deathbed regrets in regards to health and wellness? Because on one hand, you could see somebody who may be there as a result of you know, some poor lifestyle choices and whatnot and say, gosh, I wish I had taken care of myself better. And also said, you know, I wish I had to let myself have more of the double fudge and just enjoyed it. Where does that fall? You know, I see such a range, right? So the people who ended up being victims or having abusive personalities, like abusing alcohol, abusing drugs, doing things that were unhealthy for them, a lot of times what they really regret is how that took them away from the people they loved or damaged the relationships. And yet we also see the other side. People are like, why did I spend four hours a day exercising when I was going to end up getting pancreatic cancer and die anyway? I could have spent an hour exercising and maybe filling some of that time with other things I wanted to do. You get some of that, but I don't hear a lot of regretting about, well, boy, I wish I splurged more on that kind of stuff. Certainly not about food. Um, it's more about whether they found that their habits around food or addiction or whatever it was got in the way of them doing the things they ultimately want to do, connecting to the people they ultimately wanted to connect to. Interesting. Next category is mind, mental health, even mental state. So how has that, I mean, you've gone from, you know, your own life shifts from being a doctor and you said in a place that was so, took such a toil on you and, and now moving to other uh, vocational pursuits and practices and whatnot. And you've talked about, you well, you've already talked about, you mentioned meditation as something that you do, but when you look just at the, yeah, your own, I'm going to say mental state, 
Where do you find that this is what I value and you're going to support? Yeah, I mean, I think mental health is just so amazingly important. And I think it is a practice we have to build into our everyday life. I think it takes a lot of energy to feel mentally well and fit. I think that requires a lot of things. It requires being physically fit. So I think physical mm. activity is good for your mental state. I think it requires some way to quiet your brain. For some people, that's exercise. For me, that's meditation. For other people, it's listening to classical music. Um, I think many of us probably need on some level professional help from a therapist dealing with our issues because, again, we are handed down generations of trauma that we have to deal with, and then we accrue our own traumas as we grow up. Mm. Um, and I think professional help in untangling those, even for the most healthy of us, uh, is probably advantageous. Um, I think it is one of the greatest difficulties yet greatest privileges of being human beings is that we have these minds that can do these complex gymnastics. And I think in some ways it gets in our way, especially when we are not untangling all those traumas. But I think it also certainly frees us from the difficulty of not having a lot of control over some of the things that happens around us, right? My dad died when I was seven. I couldn't do anything about that. I had no control of that. We live through depressions like my grandma did. We lose family members. We have horrible upset in our lives. We don't live up to our expectations. Bad things happen. We have almost zero control over all of that. But what we do have a little bit of control over is how we interpret our lives mm -hmm. and the internal milieu we create to support ourselves. I think mental health is a huge part of happiness. In my practice, what I really elucidated with this book is my version of what I believe happiness is. And I think it's two-tiered. One is very much based on your mental health settings, and the other is based on your actions. So the part that's based on your actions is defining a sense of purpose or activities that you find joy in the process of doing regardless of the outcome. That's kind of the activity or physical portion of happiness. But the mental portion of happiness to me is learning how to tell yourself the stories about your life that make it magical. So... I definitely believe that happy people don't look at their past as being victims, but what they do is they take the bad things that happen to them and create a story in their minds about it that puts themselves in a good life and in a good light that makes them the hero of this difficult and epic journey. And if you do that in thinking about your past, you're generally going to feel optimistic and happy about the future. On the other hand, the most, some of the most miserable people I meet are the people who see themselves victims of their past. And so they're very fearful of the future because they are stuck feeling like they got a bad shake at things yeah. earlier on in life. And so I really think that's a big part of the mental game is learning how to interpret your past in the most positive ways and feel like you emerged the triumphant hero. Because if you can walk in today, into today with that mindset, there's almost nothing you can accomplish, or at least you're most likely to be happy in the future. Okay. So is that an overlap of 
your experience upon that diagnosis of death and that shift that you see away from the lifetime of fear and self-protection. And now we have this more opportunistic shift. Is that what you're talking about in essence here is, you know, can we, can we, can we manufacture that before the deathbed sentence? So I often say, and I think I've said it to you already, we kind of die the way we lived. Yeah. And so it's really hard to take someone who's felt a victim their whole life and say, oh, by the way, you're dying and let's get over that victimhood. But I think the positive side of all this is if we can start earlier, if we can stop feeling like a victim in life, then we're a lot less likely to feel a victim in death. So very much so, if we can start doing some of this mental work at a younger age, maybe we can start looking at our past and reinterpreting it and seeing the grace and the heroism in our in our in our past, as opposed to the victimhood that sets us up for being much more at peace. When we eventually get to that day, when someone, when a doctor like me walks into the room and says, I'm sorry to tell you, but you've got six months to live. Is that then, I mean, again, going back to the regrets that a regret of, I wish I had not played the victim. I wish Mm -hmm. I had not worried so much about money or whatever it may be. Uh, you said the word, and it's one I'm a fan of. I wish I had interpreted life better, more uh, victoriously or triumphant is the word that you used. Yeah. You know, I think, and this goes back to Bronnie Ware, like yeah. a big regret of the dying is that they didn't live a life more authentic to who they were. They didn't pursue those things that were important to them. If you're walking around feeling like a victim of your past, you're just not likely to pursue that authenticity. You're not likely to feel good enough to be the you that you really want to be. And I think that's what ties it all together. Hmm. All right. Work, career, uh, business is the next one, which again, we touched on in a good, a good bit in the first show together. So yeah, I'm I'm eager to easy to hit the hit some of the regrets on there. But first, first, let's talk about you. Well, again, that was, you know, a big part of your story, you went into being a doctor for not the not the healthiest, not for non authentic reasons, uh, and pursued that and invested the immense amount of time and money and effort uh, into that only to realize that that's not the or that type of doctrine, at least was not the direction that you wanted to go in. Uh, so now you're at a different place, um, but you've had multiple variations of your career and work. You're in one now as author and podcaster and whatnot. So let's come, uh, initially to the values that you would state that you have for your own work business career. So I have to frame this based on the conversation we just had. So People might say, boy, you got to the age of 40, whatever, and regretted becoming a doctor. And I'd say, no, I didn't regret it at all. In fact, the story I told myself is that I had to go through this process, which not only built financial wealth, but gave me a wealth of experiences and connection to people to have then the strength to step away from this thing to do new and more authentic work for me. So I very much, again, frame myself as the hero of that story as opposed to the victim But what that developed in me is this sense that work should really further our sense of purpose and identity. And it can do this in two ways. 
the way I like less is work can create wealth. And if you're intentional about it, you build wealth fast and then step away from that work to live a life of purpose and identity doing the things you want. I like that way a little less, but it is a very reasonable way to go about life. Say, I'm good at being a doctor. It doesn't fulfill my sense of purpose. I can work five more years, save, invest, be really frugal, and then retire in five years and pursue those things I want to do. And that's, in a sense, somewhat of what I did. Okay. I don't like that way as much. I would rather nowadays say, well, let's bring that sense of purpose and identity into the work you do, which is very much what I'm doing now. So when I looked at my values as a person, I found that my true purpose was communication. I like to podcast, to write, to public speak. I love to have these deep conversations that I could then produce for other people to hear, and maybe that would help them and change their lives. So that became my sense of purpose. And now being where I am, I can say, okay, that can become my work. I can spend 20 or 30 hours a week doing a podcast. I can write a book. I can write a blog. All these things I now can do, and I consider them to be work, and they are very purpose and identity oriented. And therefore, I'm much less likely to burn out on them the way I did in medicine and much more likely to continue them and not want to retire because I'm not retiring. I'm not trying to get away from something I don't like doing. I'm building a life of things I like to do, which I've now defined as my life's work in a much more positive way than we think of as than employment. I will tell you, the one benefit of making lots of money and maybe spending a little time of doing things that were not part of purpose for me and then accruing a lot of money is that when I went to the second phase of life where I just did work that really spoke to my heart, I didn't have to worry about making money doing it because I had built a financial framework that supported that. Yeah. So that's the only difference. I think we should all look towards work that fulfills a sense of purpose and identity and hopefully we can do that in such a way that also allows us to build a financial framework to not only be stable, but thrive, right? Have enough money to do the things we want to do. In the worst case scenario, you can grind it out and do things that you don't love doing, make lots of money, save, get to this place of financial independence, and then pursue things you want to do. But I think it's a little bit happier and easier and better if you can build purpose and identity. And now, because you might be like my father, you might die suddenly at 40 unexpectedly and never get to that point where you have the money to do what you want to do. Yeah. Well, and I want to ask, Jordan, I want to take the opportunity to ask about regrets in regards to work. Now, money is the next category, and I don't want to, I don't want to <laughs> take that or, or totally hit that, but I know they bleed in together. My assumption would be a lot of people regret having worked just for the money and not finding more purpose in that. Is there, is there anything else that is that the primary work regret? Are there others? Often when we find ourselves unhappy in our workplace, I think the regret, and I have this personal regret, is that they weren't more thoughtful about how to build purpose in their to their daily practice so that they weren't dreading work. So when I went to medical school, one of the first things I did is I volunteered at the inpatient hospice at Northwestern University. And that's because I felt a sensitivity and a closeness to the issue of death because my father died when I was seven. And I loved being a hospice volunteer. And I did it for a year or two. And then I went to my clinicals and I totally forgot about it. Maybe it was I just didn't see being a hospice doctor as being a real doctor. Or maybe I didn't think I could make enough money doing it. Or I don't even remember why. 
But I dropped that and went into general internal medicine and spent the next 15, 20 years burning out. I made lots of money, but it was unsustainable. One of my regrets is that I wasn't thoughtful enough about purpose from the beginning. If I had realized in medical school, hey, you really love this hospice work and it's really feeling connected to you, I could have gone into hospice right away. I probably would have made less money. Maybe wouldn't have gotten to the net worth or financial independence as fast, but I also probably wouldn't have burned out of my work because I would have been doing something that was much more fulfilling to me. So yes, I think as we move on and certainly as we get to the point where we're dying, we look at our work lives and a lot of people look back and say, boy, you know, I really didn't love that. And yet I spent eight hours a day doing that for the last 30 years. Could I have pivoted? Could I have found a way to bring more joy into that part of my life? Could I have done something that felt more meaningful? I, I, I certainly think that is there somewhat, um, certainly in, in a percentage of the population. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Well, to hit on then, money. I'll lead off by, I appreciate you stating in the book that the majority of people, let me see if I get this right. The majority of the people who would say, ah, you know, money's, money's not everything are the people who have gotten to a point to where they are uh, at a place of financial independence. And so it's, it's uh, almost an unfair place to say that, but there's still a balance there. And you have gone from, you know, uh, well, you've, you've talked about being fairly privileged you know, most of your life and you did go and become a doctor and, and made money. But when you look at your values now, how would you define them? So for me, the biggest value regarding money is to see money as a tool and not the goal. And I think we've really lost track of this, especially in American society, as we start seeing net worth and money as the goal. And when we do that, we start forgetting the purpose of that money, what that money is supposed to do for us. And so I'm really trying to build that value into me and my family and even the populace through this book is to build the value of money as one of many tools that helps us live a purposeful life. It's a powerful tool. It's a tool that when you have an excess of it, it can really free you of some of those responsibilities so that you can devote more of your time to purpose and, and identity. But it's not the only tool and it's certainly not the tool. 
And most importantly, it's not the goal. And so that's the value that I'm really trying to build and pass on. And yes, it's really easy to say that when you come from a place of privilege and have a lot of money or are financially independent, but I think it's just as important in people who are not in a place of privilege to start realizing that money is one of the tools and not all of the tools. And if they're in a place where they only have enough money just to get by, they start using some of those other tools, their communities, their relationships, their time, their energy, and start using all those things to start working on purpose today as opposed to putting it off. Huh. It. it it reminds me of, I mean, we have, we know that a love hate relationship with money. It seems like I feel like people are pretty polarized. They either, you know, love it or a spouse to, or they hate it. And to me, I'm, I'm curious about putting in there when I ask you about money, money, finances, and possessions as well to, to put that in there, because I'll find somebody who will say, I, you know, I hate money, hate money, money's evil, you know, whatever. And yet they adore their possessions, <laughs> yeah. whatever that may be, the dog they bought, the guitar they have, the bike, the car, the whatever it may be. And, and I think oh, it doesn't really fit. It's kind of like saying, you know, I, I hate water. I love fishing. Well, you, you need water for the, do you really hate water? You know, so kind of playing with that and the, the errant views that we get around money. I mean, it does feel like, and I know this is a topic that you're an expert in. It feels like we have a lot of baggage around money and you're seeing an acute manifestation of that at the end of life. Yeah. I mean, I think we all have a huge amount of money trauma, right? And it manifests differently in different people, depending on their personalities and the trauma they experienced. For some people that ends up being money hoarding and for other people it ends up or money loving, so to speak. And then for other people, it's many money spending and money hating. Ultimately the goal really is to be money indifferent. The idea, again, is it's it should be no more exciting or unexciting to us than a hammer is for a nail that needs to be driven into a piece of wood. It's the tool you need at the moment. That hammer isn't going to make you happy. It's not going to make your car run. It's not going to fix your relationship with your cousin who you just got into a fight with. But it'll do a darn good job of getting that nail into that wood. And I think we have to start looking at money the same way. It has a purpose. It can help us do some things, but it's not the end all be all. It's not something we should be scared of or avoid. And it's not something we should love or hate. It's just something that should help us build these lives that we love. So I'm going to bring it back. And you mentioned Ken Honda, who was such a joy to have on the show. And he endorsed, he was the last endorsement we got uh, put on the book cover. And I hear you agreeing with him that the money's, yeah, the money, like you say, is a tool. And what matters most is just how we think about it. And he, he gave me a lot to ponder as far as how I viewed money, happy money or sad money, how I viewed even the money that I gave. Was I happy in doing so? Was I sad in doing so? And the yeah. impact that it had on me. Yeah. I mean, Ken is, is fantastic. And his, what he calls happy money, this idea that when we're living good lives, happy money flows to us and flows through us towards other people. And again, it's this idea that money comes to us in exchange for the things we do. And if we're doing things that are important to us and that feel good and are full of purpose, 
We're not going to spend a lot of time thinking about that money. We're going to use it and then we're going to happily spend it on things that are important to us, things that further our sense, further our sense of purpose or help our fellow human beings or do things we want done in the world. It really is a nice twist on this idea of money, something that's so fearful and weighty in our hearts and minds. And he just lightens it up so much and brings it back to the important part, which is again, us being intentional, living our values, doing those things that are purposeful for us. And the money's going to dance around us. It's going to dance in our hands and it's going to dance right out. And I think that's okay. Hmm. Last one here is interest, just personal. Uh, the interest, and you actually talked about it a moment ago, uh, and you mentioned happiness, and you said from activities that just bring us uh, joy. In essence, they may not, in and of themselves, you know, have a, a big intrinsic value. And and I I like looking at it that way more and more. I found myself in this question, in this category, asking about the things that you do that may not have a productive result. Uh, in it, which obviously you've talked about one very much, uh, with the baseball cards, that that's yeah. something that is just, you don't have to, uh, I find myself thinking about Cause these days I, I look at stuff that I like and I think I don't have to justify it. It just is. I don't know why it brings me joy. It just does. And like you talk about, I like to collect stuff. Don't know why. Well, what's that benefit the world? Who cares if it gives you inspiration, it gives us inspiration. So anything, uh, obviously you talked about the cards, uh, that that does that. What other things fall in that category? Oh, for me, it's definitely comes down to communication, right? And I love things that are creating a sense of communication. I love having deep conversations. I mean, I spend a lot of my time podcasting mm -hmm. and it gives me a huge sense of purpose and a big reason why it's a good activity for me to fill my time because from the moment I get in front of the mic to the moment I'm done, it feels important and necessary and fulfilling. And if all that happens is I switch the mic off and never do anything with that recording, I've already won the game. It's already been worth my time. Now I can still release it and thousands or millions of people can download it and listen and it, maybe it'll change their lives. Maybe it won't. I can't control that very much, but I can control the joy, the feeling of purpose, the importance that I feel when I get behind the mic. And that doesn't mean I can't also work on improvement. I can still feel joy at this idea that I can become a better interviewer. I can become more fluent in my answers. I can build a better intro or I can study podcasting to see what people like and don't like. That doesn't mean that I'm going to be the most successful podcaster out there in the world because I have very little control over that, but I can get a little better. I can improve the quality of what I'm doing. So this idea of doing something you love the process as opposed to the product or end goal, yes. as well as feeling like the activities you're doing, you're making some incremental gain, regardless of how you define that gain. It's a gain that feels important to you. And if you have those two things, to me, that at least is the action part of happiness. That was, I was uh, with Robert Waldinger talking about Arthur Brooks and Robert said that he's at a point now of so uh, much less focus on the achievement, like you talked about the product and more, he said the, on the path, is he enjoying the path? Like you said, is he enjoying 
the process. Well, on the cards, though, I did want to ask, get a favorite baseball card? So, you know, I, I love to marry my different interests, right? So I'm interested in finances. I'm interested in investing. And I have very few alternative investments. So I've been thinking lately, what if I took 5% of my portfolio and bought some real collectible? collectible baseball cards as an alternative investment. And you know what I love? I love finding really old cards of the great. So like the Babe Ruth and the Ty Cobbs and the Honus Wagners and the Lou Gehrig's and the stuff that's starting to get harder and harder to find. It's certainly hard to find it in really good condition. Like that stuff lights me up. I know like when I'm flipping through something and I see an old baseball card, my attention just boom, right goes there. So yeah. So those are the cards that I've been looking at lately. I was a collector in the 80s, right? So I was like Wade Boggs and Don Mattingly and, you know, all these Ricky Henderson and all, all these kind of people like who I used to collect. Um, but I love going back to, because I remember that was part of the dream. Even when I was in the 80s collecting, I remember the dream of those greats, right? Like the Babe Ruth and the Mickey Mantles and the Willie Mays yeah. and... And so that's what I think if I were to ever go in that direction and maybe buy some investable grade collectibles, I'd go back and get some of those really classic players whose cards are getting more and more scarce because some of these cards are now over a hundred years old. It's getting harder and harder to find them. And are you an avid sports fan? I mean, you avidly are watching baseball these days. I'm not really I stopped. <laughs> I stopped paying attention to sports in middle school to maybe early high school and don't i know nothing about sports nowadays although i mean i know enough about like watching basketball so i grew up i grew up in chicago during the michael jordan era and and you know i was a young kid during the heyday of of the bears and walter payton and jim mcmahon and all that so i loved it back then i've kind of stepped away from that just because my family's not interested my wife's not interested so we don't do a lot of that stuff but yeah. the baseball card still holds some interest for me. I could see myself going back to watching baseball someday, maybe. Yeah. Well, I could see too. You put in eighty hours a week for a long time as a doc. When do you get to watch sports? I th I stopped as a pro cyclist because man, on the weekends when the people were watching sports, I was racing. So that kind of yeah, ended exactly for, ended for me. Hey, Jordan, thank you, thank you for this. Uh, obviously, sharing just your personal stories in this, but also the commentary just on the culture and and what you see from your privileged position with people at such an acute and important stage of life. It's a gift. And I hope uh, as much of a paradigm shift for everybody listening as it has been for me. So thank you. It's been a complete honor. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast. All right, more to come as we continue to discuss Jordan and these end of life revelations that we can apply to our lives right now. His book again is Taking Stock a hospice doctor's advice on financial independence, building wealth, and living a regret-free life. Again, you can find him at jordangrummet.com. Friends, thank you so much for tuning into the Self-Helpful Podcast, where I strive to help you and me elevate our personal experience and the way we show up for others. Stay driven, my friends.